Today we're going to be looking at the last prayer of Jesus that he prayed in the upper room with the disciples, or I should say the last recorded prayer. We know that he also prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane as well. But in this prayer, we see something of Jesus' heart prior to going to the cross and the things that he was concerned about and praying for the disciples and for the church. So listen to these words as I read part of it for us, and then we'll uh, continue a little bit later in the message. John chapter 17. After Jesus had said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these words of Jesus this morning and what was on his heart as he went to the cross, may we be moved by it too. And may our hearts be in tune with yours in terms of our prayer, our thoughts, our priorities. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was studying this passage this week, one of the commentators I was looking at called this prayer the real Lord's Prayer. And I thought about that, and I I liked that as I was chewing on it this week. He made that comment because this prayer is the actual words of Jesus that he used in his prayer to the Father. The prayer we call the Lord's Prayer, uh, more properly, could actually be called the Disciples' Prayer. It's the prayer that he taught us to pray as his followers or disciples. A prayer that we are to use as a model, if you will, for our prayers also. But this prayer really is the Lord's prayer that He gave to His Father shortly before going to the cross. And as we look at this passage this morning, there are several things I'd like you to think about, to keep in mind as we walk through this text. First of all, this is holy ground. When I come to this passage and I read these words, I marvel that we are listening in on a prayer, on a conversation between two persons of the Trinity. We are listening to God the Son pray to God the Father. And we are hearing the words of Jesus in this intimate conversation that He has with His Father in Heaven. This is the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in Scripture. And so there's some depth here and some insight as to what was on His heart. Prayer is an intimate communication. When you think about times when you have prayed with others, I have noted that there are times when people will say things in prayer that they would not say sometimes in open conversation. They'll express affirmation or how much they appreciate someone else or how much they love someone else or what's on their heart, their hopes and dreams and fears in a way that sometimes they wouldn't be able to in just normal conversation. It's because prayer draws us into the presence of God. This prayer comes just prior to the cross. And yet Jesus' main concern here is not for himself. He does pray for himself. But his main concern is for the disciples and for the church. For us who will believe in him through the disciples' work. 
And as we go through this prayer, this the tone of the prayer is solemn, it is serious, but it is not gloomy. As we read through it, there is the sound of triumphant expectation. Jesus is about to finish His work. And He's going home. He's going back to the Father in heaven. The prayer divides easily into three parts. Everybody notes that. If you have a Bible that has headings, you'll see that too. Jesus prays for Himself. He prays for the disciples. And He prays for all believers. And we're going to walk through it in that fashion. So first of all, Jesus prays for Himself in verses 1 to 5. John says that as he prayed, he looked toward heaven. That was a common posture in Jewish prayer. And it reminds us again that you can pray in many different ways. You can pray with your head lifted up or with your head bowed. You can pray with your eyes open or your eyes closed. You can have your hands folded or your knees bent. There are many different postures for prayer. And so here Jesus was with the disciples and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he began to pray. And he said, Father, the time has come. The time has come. Those words are significant. Do you remember when Jesus began his ministry? Where did he perform his first miracle? It was at a wedding in Cana. And what had happened there? Well, there was this embarrassing situation where the couple had run out of wine. This was to be a celebration. They were to provide for the people. It was a time of joy. And so Mary came to Jesus wanting Him to do something. She didn't know what, but she said to the steward, you know, do whatever He asks you to do. And how did Jesus respond to her? He said, woman, my time has not come. This is not the time for Jesus to reveal Himself yet fully. A little later in John's Gospel, in chapter 7, we read about his brothers who were seeing what Jesus was doing and the people that were following him, and they kind of, you know, were urging him on, said, you know, Jesus, if you really want to show yourself to the world, go to Jerusalem. Don't just be in this kind of backwater area of Galilee, but go to Jerusalem. And there, why don't you do some of your wonders and miracles so that everybody will see you. And what did Jesus say to them? He said, the right time for me has not yet come. At least two other times, the religious leaders would try to arrest Jesus, wanting to put Him to death. And He would escape from their grasp because the time had not yet come. But now the time has come. Jesus is about to complete His mission. And as He said, no one would take His life from Him. He would lay it down of His own accord. And the time had come when Jesus, the King, was about to lay down His life for us. And so He prays, Father, glorify Your Son, that Your Son may glorify You. Now, what does that word glorify mean? That's a word that we hear in the Scriptures many times, but what does that really mean to glorify the root of that word is the word doxa. It means praise. We use it in the word doxology. Logos means word. Doxos means praise. It is a word of praise or a blessing. But this word can also mean, and in this context, it takes on more the idea to exalt or to lift up or to make known, to reveal 
What he's saying is, Father, lift up the Son and I will lift you up. Glorify your Son. Make Him known. And through this work that He is about to do on the cross, God will be made known to the people. And we will learn something more about what God is like and His love for us and the extent of that love that would be willing to give His only Son to die in our place. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now is the time for the true identity of the Son to be revealed to the world. But this is indeed my Son, my Savior, the one who will die on the cross for us. Jesus goes on to pray. He said, For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Jesus has the power to give life. God the Father has granted him that authority. We see the initiative of God the Father and salvation here in that Jesus said, You have given me authority over all people, Jews, Gentiles, all the nations of the earth, that he might give eternal life to those that the Father has given to him. In John's Gospel, it's very clear God's sovereignty and salvation. God is the one who takes the initiative. He's the one who chooses, who calls, who works in people's hearts, who opens our eyes to see. No one can come to the Father except the Father draws him. And Jesus says, Out of all that are given to me, I will lose none, but I will raise them up on the last day. Jesus has been given the power to give eternal life. And what is eternal life? He tells us that eternal life is to know you. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the heart of Christianity. It is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to know God. There's no other path, no other religion. There's only one way. And Jesus Himself has said that, that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. The heart of Christianity is not do's and don'ts. It's not a set of rules to follow or laws to obey. The heart of Christianity is a relationship with God. A relationship that will last through all of eternity. And because God is infinite in terms of His person and who He is and all that He has planned for us, it will take all of eternity to reveal that to us. This is eternal life. The means by which God will glorify or bring honor to the Son is through the cross. The time has come when Jesus is going to go to the cross and Jesus says, you know, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. This was His mission. To come and lay down His life as a ransom for many. And it is because of His death and resurrection that He will be exalted and worshipped through eternity. Someday we will see the scars. We'll see the wounds that He bears that pay the penalty for your sin and mine. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? To see that One who gave His life for you and for me. And here it is prior to the cross and yet Jesus speaks of it as already done. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. 
In Jesus' mind and in His commitment, it is done. He is going to the cross. And He will pay that debt. And then in verse 5 He says, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your presence with the glory I had with You before the world began. Think about that. Think about what that is saying. It's a verse that speaks again about Jesus' pre-existence. Jesus would say, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. I am that eternally existing one who has always been. And before this world was made, Jesus shared in that glory with His Father. The glory of the one God who exists in three persons, His Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, Father, glorify me now in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He's looking forward to that restoration of returning back to heaven to his Father's side, to the glory and privileged position that he had there. Can you imagine the celebration that took place in heaven when Jesus returned home? You know, I was listening to the news this past week, and I'm sure you heard heard the story too about uh, England's Prince Harry, who was fighting in Afghanistan. He wanted to do that. He wanted to fight as a soldier and be on the front lines there, and so they kept it very secret so that his unit would not be placed in undue harm by being known that he was there. And then someone in the media somehow thought it was a good idea to reveal this and make it known. And because of that, Prince Harry was called home. His commanding officer who was over him said he had served with distinction and honor. And in the future, he would be able to hold his head high because of what he had done. But I think he was probably disappointed too in what had happened because he wanted to be there with his fellow soldiers that he had trained with. But think of the welcome that he received when he returned home. I'm sure there was a celebration, if you will, in the palace that night when he came back. But that's nothing compared to the welcome that Jesus received in heaven when he returned to his Father's side. Victorious and triumphant over sin and death and Satan, he had won forever the victory that would bring us salvation. What a great day that was. Jesus goes on in His prayer to pray for the disciples. And listen to these words in verses 6 and following. Jesus said, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have obeyed your word. And now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them. Uh, excuse me, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of Your name, the name You gave Me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name You gave Me. 
None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is Jesus' prayer for the disciples. He knows that he is going to be leaving them. And when he talks about the disciples and their faith, there are three things that he affirms about them. The disciples believed in his word. They had accepted his word as God's word. And they came to believe in his word as truth. They also believed in his identity and his person, that he was the Messiah, he was the Son of God. And they came to believe in his work, his mission to bring the good news to those who had never heard about him. That's really what a believer is. That's what he asks of us, that we as his followers would believe in his word, believe in his person, and believe in his work, and join in that as well. And so Jesus prayed for five things for his disciples that are really prayers for us and the church also. He prayed, first of all, for protection in verses 11 and 12, that the Father would protect them from the evil one. Now, there are some times when people look at that and they go, you know, I mean, he prayed for protection, but all but one of his disciples would die a martyr's death. I mean, that doesn't sound like it was really answered in the way that we would think of it being answered. No, it was answered. Jesus' prayer for their protection was that their faith would be strong, that they would remain faithful to the end. And all of them did remain faithful, except Judas, the one who was doomed to destruction, the one who had chosen not to place his trust in Jesus as the Messiah. When he prays for us, he prays for our protection too. Not that we would not go through trials or suffering in our life. There are believers today who are dying a martyr's death. But He prays for us that we would be strong to the end, faithful, that we would finish the course or the work that He has given to us to do also. And all of the disciples would do that. And all would be honored in heaven. He prayed for unity for the church. That we would be one even as He and the Father are one. A spiritual unity. A deep and real connection with Him and with one another in the body of Christ. And sometimes this too is misunderstood. Jesus wasn't praying for a kind of uniformity where we are all the same, where we all act and think and dress the same. He's not praying for organizational unity, that we would just be one kind of structure in the church. For there are many different ways that God has brought people together in many different churches. And there are distinctives and uniqueness about those churches. But there's only one church in this community. There may be different places where people meet to worship, 
But all who know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord are part of that one church. And that one church is universal. It is worldwide. And we have something in common with believers who live in China or Africa or South America or India or wherever they may be. There's a unity that comes because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And locally, in the church of which we are a part, we share things in common and we really do need one another. It's kind of like a puzzle, if you will. Some of you may enjoy putting puzzles together. I do on occasion, pulling one out and putting together those pieces. And if you think about the individual pieces of a puzzle, it's kind of like the individuals who make up a church. There are protrusions on those pieces. And there are indentations, if you will. And maybe those can represent our strengths, our gifts and talents and abilities, and also our weaknesses, our faults, our limitations, our shortcomings. But the beautiful thing about the body of Christ is that as we come together and those pieces are joined together, they complement one another to produce a whole picture. What's sad is when there are pieces that are missing. You ever, have you ever put together a puzzle and you got done and there's a piece or two missing? You know, it kind of takes away from the whole picture. The Scripture says in the body of Christ that we really do need one another. We're not all hands or all feet or all ears or all mouth. We need each of those different parts coming together to be a whole. And we benefit from that when we work together. Jesus prayed for that kind of deep spiritual unity in the body of Christ and that we would love one another and value each other. He also prayed for joy. In verse 13, He prayed these things, He said to the Father, so that the full measure of His joy would be in us. You know, that's pretty amazing when you think about it. Jesus is praying for you and me and He wants us to experience His joy full measure of that in our life. A joy that runs deep. A joy that comes out of knowing that we have a relationship with Him. That our sins are forgiven. That we are doing what God wants us to do in this life. We are a part of something much bigger than ourselves. Using our gifts for His honor and glory. God wants us to be joyful. How do we get that? by living and walking according to His Word. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit who is at work in us that produces that kind of joy. You know, this last week I was looking at the uh, Chisago Lakes School Review in which they do this testing and assessment of students. And they ask life questions. And they ask how they're feeling in a sense about themselves. And uh, they ask questions related to drug or alcohol use or sexual activity or how they feel in terms of have they had thoughts of suicide in the last year. And probably the statistic that jumped out of there most to me as I read through that was that question about suicidal thoughts. It said that 37% of our high school senior girls have had thoughts of suicide in the last year. About 16% of the boys have had that. And I go, you know, at that age, for a young adult, at a time when you should have all of your kind of hopes and dreams, I mean, you got your whole life ahead of you. you got all these things that you could do and be 
as God has made you and the potential that you have to be thinking that maybe life isn't worth it or this isn't what I thought it would be is a really sad thing to me. Because I look at Jesus Christ who says, I want you to know my joy. I want you to experience that in your life. Fullness of joy that comes from a relationship with me. There's a message that needs to get out there, doesn't it? The people need to hear that so that they might know Christ and experience that joy and meaning and purpose in their life. Joy isn't found in hedonism. So the world says, pursue pleasure and you'll find this kind of joy. No, you won't. You'll find emptiness and bankruptcy if you just think that pure pleasure is going to fill that void. It's not in narcissism. A self-centeredness that thinks it's all about me. If you think this life is all about you, you're never going to find it. It's found in giving, and service, and mission. If you think that joy is found in materialism and having more and more stuff and acquiring more things, it is not found there. You will find that that is empty as well. Joy is found in Jesus. Jesus, others, and you. It's found in walking and living according to His Word. And the kind of joy that we can experience there will last forever. Jesus prayed for holiness. He said, Father, sanctify them in the truth. That word sanctify means to set apart or to make holy. God wants to purify our heart. He wants us to be growing in Christ-likeness and that relationship with Him. And the way, the way that He sanctifies us is by the Word of God. The Word of God reveals our sin and it raises our sights. It helps us to know what it is that God wants of us. It raises our standards and it calls us to live differently. John Adams, one of our early presidents, once wrote in his journal these words. He said, Suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book. This is going to be our guide. And every member of that nation, if they chose to regulate their conduct by the precepts of that book, imagine what that would be like. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance, self-control, frugality, and industry. They'd be obliged to do things like justice and kindness and charity toward their fellow man and to show piety, love, and reverence toward Almighty God. What a utopia. What a paradise that would be if people took the Word of God as their guide and chose to live by it. And finally, Jesus prayed for the mission in verse 18. He said, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus was handing the baton to His disciples. And it was a risk. I mean, would they take that baton? Would they run with it? Would they take up this mission of bringing the Gospel to the ends of the earth? The good news of salvation that Jesus was about to accomplish. They they remembered His promises. He said in the Great Commission that, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He said in this Gospel that you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. 
Would you come and you pray for the church and you pray for the mission and the work that I have called you to do? You come and you ask and I will provide what you need. He said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And he gave this magnificent promise to Peter and the disciples that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There may be times when the church is storm-tossed, where it is under attack, where it is weary, it is struggling, but it will not fail because Jesus has given His Word on that. And there are times when the church may need to be revived or renewed or a new birth or new forms need to take shape, but the church ultimately will not fail because Jesus will build it. And He will use people that are fully devoted to Him to accomplish that task. That's my hope. That's my encouragement. When I think about the church today, and I think about what's going on in our world, and the needs that are out there, and the opportunities to serve, I don't know of anything tougher to do than work in the church, but I don't know of anything more rewarding to do than to be a part of the church and to join with God in His mission in this world. And finally, in the last section, Jesus prayed for us. Look at verses 20 to 26. He said, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known, in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Wow, what an awesome prayer. Jesus, in this section, prayed for unity among his people, that all of them may be one as he is one just like He prayed for the disciples. The unity Jesus prayed for is not just a unity in the church today, but it's a unity with the apostolic church and its teaching. You see, there is a common thread, a common faith that runs from the apostles through men like Athanasius or Augustine. It goes through the Middle Ages to the Reformers, men like Luther or Calvin or Zwingli through the Puritans like Owens and Edwards and others, through the evangelists like Moody and Finney and Billy Graham. And it extends to us today. There's a unity. There's this truth that we have in common that Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinners and that through Him we can know the one true God. That unity takes work to maintain. That's why in Ephesians 4 it says that we should make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's only one body. 
There's just one Spirit, just as we were called to. One hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And we are to work toward that kind of unity that comes from our joining with Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed for the mission that the world may believe through our witness. He said, I have given them the glory that you gave me. Now that's an interesting phrase. I've given them the glory. That's that baton, if you will. It is the glory of the gospel. Why did Jesus come? It was to save sinners. And he accomplished that work on the cross. And what is the glory that he has given to us? This great privilege to announce the good news to the world. That Jesus Christ died for you and for me so that they might come to know Him as Savior and Lord. You know, we had a really neat opportunity. I'm going to tie it in to one of the white roses here this week. Um, Pastor Dan and Pastor Ron and I often go out for lunch after our staff meeting on Tuesdays. And uh, most of the time we just go down here to the restaurant at the gallery and we were down there on Tuesday and we were having lunch together. And one of the waitresses who's there often came, and after um, lunch and other people had gone, she just kind of came up and she said, you know, uh, she said, you guys are pastors, right? And we said, yeah. And she said, can I ask you a question? And she sat down, and the tears started to come. And she said, I have a grandfather who's dying of cancer. And he's tired of dealing with the pain. And he wants to die, but he's afraid to die. Because he's afraid that he's going to go to hell. And he doesn't know what to do. And so we talked to her and and, uh, we said, why don't you come on over to the church after work? And we'll walk you through. God has an answer for that. We'll walk you through what God says about that. And uh, we'll do it with you and then you can share that with your grandfather. And so she came over one night after work uh, this week or one afternoon and Pastor Ron had the opportunity to talk to her and to walk her through the steps to peace with God. Where are you at? You know, in your relationship with God. She knew where she was at on the man's side. Where do you want to be? I want to know God. And he just had the opportunity to lead her to salvation through that so that she, in turn, might share with her grandfather so that he could know that his sins can be forgiven. That's what it's all about. That's the mission. To be available wherever God has placed us and look for those opportunities and to pray for those kind of opportunities that we might share the good news with those who need to hear. And how does Jesus end this prayer? He ends this prayer by praying about our future hope. This is pretty awesome to think about. In verses 25 and 26, he said, Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me and to see my glory. I want them to know and to see my glory in all of its fullness. In verse 24, he prayed that, that where I am, that they may be there also. I think about that. Jesus is saying, I want you someday. I mean, I want you to come and I want you to see what heaven is like. You know, I I think about that and I try to imagine this. I go, you know, I love to travel. 
And when I see someplace that's really cool or really neat, I want to tell people about it. Or I'd love to take people there and say, do you see this? Look at this. The mountains, the valleys, the streams, whatever it might be. This is awesome. But I can't imagine hardly what that's going to be like when Jesus says, I want you to see what heaven is like. And this glory that was veiled while He was present on this earth, I want you to see that in all of its fullness. We're going to see Him. Our eyes are going to be changed. We're going to see Him in His fullness and His glory. And then He's going to say, let me show you around this place. We're going to see the splendors of heaven and the angels and God the Father and His manifestation as He is there on the throne. And we're going to see the glories of this whole world made new. I can hardly imagine what that's going to be like. And Jesus says, that's what I'm praying for you. Now, if these are the kinds of things that Jesus prayed about, you know, He prayed for protection. Not necessarily from bad things happening in our life, but that our faith would be strong to the end. That we'd be faithful to the end. He prayed for unity in the church. He prayed for holiness and Christ-likeness. He prayed for our joy. He prayed for our mission, that we would join Him in His work. And He prayed about our future hope. If these are the kinds of things that were on Jesus' heart, on His prayer list, shouldn't they be on our prayer list too? Shouldn't these be the kinds of things that we are thinking about and praying about for our church, for our community, for our world? changes the way we look at prayer there, doesn't it? Prayer is not just about me and my personal needs. Prayer is much bigger than that when we join in praying about the things that were on Jesus' heart. So what should we do in response to a message like this? I believe that God wants us to worship Him, to praise the Father and praise the Son for what He has done. He wants us to love Him. This is eternal life, to know the only true God and Jesus His Son, and to get to know Him more and more, and He wants us to serve Him. He wants us to take up the mission and join in His work and give ourselves fully to that. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful passage this is. And I pray that we have all sensed something of the holiness, that this is holy ground that we are standing on today. And as we think about that, and maybe there's some part of this message, some part of this scripture that's really resonated in your heart, would you just nail that down right now in your heart and say, Jesus, I was, I need to pray differently. Or Jesus, I want to know that joy in my heart. I want to know you better. I want to be more holy, more Christ-like. There are things I need to give up. I need to put aside. Jesus, I want to join with you in the mission. I've been living for self, but I want to live for you. Whatever it is you need to do this morning, would you nail that down in your heart and bring that before God right now? And I'm going to give you a moment of silence to do that, and then I'll close in prayer.
Father, you know our heart. You know the words that we have just expressed to you today. May the presence of Christ in us and the power of your Holy Spirit enable us to do what we have said. We pray in his name. Amen.